Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Bowman, the host of Side Door, a podcast with candid conversations with world-class entrepreneurs. So uh, this is uh, me being, I guess, somewhat overconfident or arrogant uh, during the early days of fundraising for Wallex. I was like, yeah, man, I, I used to be in VC. You know, I know what, I know what they look for. I can kind of mold my deck, whatever, to, to present and, you know, give the story of, uh, be able to kind of tell the story of what Wallet is going to be. Uh, so I pinged a bunch of my kind of VC contacts, say, hey, look, I'm doing uh, Wallet now, you know, we're raising our kind of pre-A round, you want to talk. So that part was easy, right? Getting the, getting the first conversation was, was, uh, was pretty, uh, I would say, smooth. But from then on, man, oh man, I was I was wrong. Like, man, fundraising is difficult. You know, being a being a VC and turning into a founder doesn't necessarily get you an investment. Both sides of the table is a popular blog written by venture capitalist Mark Suster. He started his career as an entrepreneur and then moved to an investor role. This is an increasingly popular career move with seasoned entrepreneurs. But today's guest took the inverse route. Hiro Kiga is the co-founder and COO of Wallex, a B2B fintech company, fintech meaning financial technology. His career started in banking and then moved to venture capital before getting the itch to build something. We've heard entrepreneur stories here, and last week we got a glimpse of the VC life with Shianko. But Hiro is the first founder we've had who has had experience on both sides of the table. He has early experience with the Indonesian tech ecosystem as he was one of the first investors in Bukalapak's Series A round. Bukalapak is now a billion-dollar e-commerce company in Indonesia. Hero and I discuss how his startup, Wallex, which helps businesses transfer money across borders, got started without a license, how they built trust with customers as an early fintech company, and lessons he has learned as a founder that he wasn't aware of as a venture capitalist. Hi, Hero. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for having me here. Uh, excited to be on your show. Yeah, thank you so much for the time. Uh, you are the co-founder and COO of Wallex. Uh, and before we really get into, uh, you know, how you got to, to Wallex, can you please uh, give the listeners a brief uh, explanation of what Wallex does uh, and then kind of give an example of how you work with businesses? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what Wallex is, is a B2B focused FX and cross-border payments engine. And we try to connect businesses across Asia Pacific in helping them do their cross-border payments. So, you know, our primary use case is, let's say you're, a, you're an SME uh, business importing goods out of, in, from Singapore or Indonesia. You have suppliers to pay in China. You have suppliers to pay in Japan, Europe, US. And um, so we help with, with facilitating uh, the payments to those suppliers, right? And we do it in such a way that everything is online and that it's much more um, cost efficient. So much better rates, uh, much lower fees than what you would normally get at a bank. And do I as a business, uh, do I have to have, um, you know, business entities in these different countries and bank accounts in these different countries? So that's the beauty of, of uh, where, uh, what we do when, when it comes to sending money, right? Um, as long as you're, you have the entity and account where you're sending money from, you don't need to have a, a, an account uh, where you're sending money to because effectively we're sending money to your suppliers, right? So that supplier doesn't necessarily have to have a Wallex account, for example, but of course they need a bank account. 
Um, so it's pretty much, so think of it as like a, as a bank to bank transfer. Um, so where, you know, when you're supply, when you're paying suppliers in, in, let's say in the US from Singapore, you book a transaction uh, with our rate, with our fees on our dashboard, uh, you send Sing dollar uh, or Indonesian rupiah to our local bank accounts here. And then we, th uh, we uh, pay out your suppliers in the say US from our local bank accounts in the US. Got it. Okay. And so it's, when I first thought of wallets, I was thinking similar to Stripe, but it sounds like uh, it's similar, but different. Yeah, I, I guess the easier way, uh, the, the more simpler uh, analogy is uh, transfer wise for businesses. Um, uh, and and the key it. differentiating factor, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, between, between us and transfer wise, I think transfer wise is more of a consumer product, right? Uh, but we're, we, we try to position ourselves as SME specialists. Got it. So you're, you're definitely B2B, uh, but that, you know, transfer wise, I think is a, I've used it before personally, very easy product to use and it, it has made my life a lot easier. So I can understand, <clears throat> especially in Indonesia, Southeast Asia, where businesses are digitizing uh, and, you know, the, the fintech ecosystem is, is still, um, you know, nascent, right? There's a lot of, a lot of things that are happening that are, um, pretty elementary. So for, for all of these small, small to medium sized businesses where uh, they might not be as tech savvy, this sounds like it's a much easier uh, op option for them. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So um, uh, can you, can we go back to, you know, what is your professional background and, and how did you, uh, you know, develop this idea of Wallex and what made you want to start it? So my career, I started off as a developer, actually, at uh, Macquarie Bank, uh, which is an investment bank, um, and, and, and you know, was doing that for about four or five years uh, back in Sydney. And, and I have like crazy, I mean, vivid memories of my first week because it was the, fir when I, the first week that I started was September 2008, and that's when Lehman went down, right? Like a fresh grad on the trading floor, like managing our inbox of, of IT requests to do a, and people are just screaming, like going, going nuts. And I was like, what, 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 what's happening? Um, <laughs> so that, that, that was a very uh, uh, memorable, you know, first week of my, of my professional career yeah, um, I can imagine. In, in Australia. <laughs> and, and then, uh, yeah, so, uh, and then in 2012, um, uh, I, I got a, I got a, well, actually 2011, you know, uh, a friend of mine, Rick, Rick Kawano, who was the uh, founder of uh, Midtrans acquired by Gojek, um, uh, you know, uh, pinged me and said, hey, look, you know, I know I, uh, I've got this uh, Japanese VC who's setting up shop in Singapore. They're looking for a guy who understands Indonesia and uh, can speak Japanese and is in tech. And the only person that I could think of was you, Hiro. I was like, yeah, actually, that, that fits my profile. Um, so I took a stab at it, right? Like, I think that was a, that was an opportunity for me to come back to Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, which I've been wanting to, um, and for me to kind of jump into the VC world. Um, and, you know, despite, yeah, I, I, I guess like I'll say this publicly, despite having to take like a 50% pay cut, whatever, right? It was, it was a, it was an opportunity for me to, come into an ecosystem that was still at its nascent stages, right? So that was really exciting. And yeah. from then on, you know, yeah, I, I did VC for about what, four or five years, investments on, on you know, on, on the other side of the table where I'm, where I'm right now, and decided to do a, a Wallex in 2016 uh, with my co-founder. 
yeah, I think what you're you're saying about taking a, a pay cut to to go into a, a new industry is is really important because um, I, I've talked to a lot of people who are, you know, they feel the, the golden handcuffs uh, at their job that they might not be uh, really enthralled with and they want to make the move, but they're just afraid, right? So I love the fact that you you kind of made that jump uh, regardless of what the, the finances might be in the short term. Um, so you were, you're working in venture capital, right? And so is it something that you, uh, enjoyed what were, you know, what were the things that you really, uh, liked in your first experience, uh, investing? So what I really enjoyed about VC back in those days, right? Because there, because it's such an early kind of, uh, um, early days of, of, of startup, everybody was like in the mood, of like helping each other. Right. So getting to know founders, talking to other VCs, um, yeah, just, just understanding the whole kind of, you know, a wide variety of industries and tech uh, was very exciting for me. Um, but there was one thing that really kind of caught my attention uh, while, while in VC, right? Um, so I could, I could remember vividly, like speaking to at least the founders of our portfolio companies um, about strategy and so forth. And they would ask me for advice. And they would ask me to, you know, this, you know, what, what would I do in this situation? What would I do in that situation? And to me, it was like, wow, you know, I've, I've never really been in the founder's shoe. I've never really been on, on in their side of the table. Like, how am I, who am I to, to give them proper advice, right? So with the best knowledge that I had, I would just try to, you know, scrap up something and, 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 uh, and be, try to uh, add value. And that was like my turning point on my VC career, um, and where I decided to make it a personal mission that, hey, if I were to ever go back into investing or VC, I would want to be a founder first so that I, I know what it's like to be a founder. So you have dabbled in VC, right? You, you got that experience and listening to, to, to pitch decks and understanding what uh, you know, investors want and how, how startups are positioning themselves. But you had that itch because one, you thought it'd be good for um, for the VC career, but two, you thought, you know, it's just something that you were interested in building. Right. Uh, and so how, how did you one meet your co-founder and how did you come up with this idea, uh, for wallets? Yeah. So funny story. I actually met my co-founder my first weekend in Singapore partying through mutual friends. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I remember like, I tried to show him this like lousy cigarette magic trick, which like absolutely failed. <laughs> it was like, Oh, you did this, didn't you? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, since then we've kind of kept in touch, you know, he was, uh, he was a prop trader, I think at a hedge fund. Um, and because I was in VC, you know, we would just kind of bounce ideas off each other. And, uh, it came to the point where in 2015, we were kind of talking about, you know, what Wallex is, right? Initially it was, it was, a more retail consumer focused uh, business where we thought of, Hey, you know, there's a uh, tourist coming into Singapore, tourists going out. They always need to kind of exchange money, exchange currencies. How can we bring this online? Right. Um, and so we've studied this model a little bit uh, about digital currency conversions or even remittance. And the more people that we talked to, uh, we spoke to, uh, the more we found out that, Hey, this is actually a much, much bigger problem in the B2B space, right? Uh, businesses or SMBs, SMEs here have recurring payment needs and each time they're slapped with uh, bad rates, expensive fees, 
and it just it just you know it, it, it hurts them so we that, and that's when we kind of decided okay let's go into b2b fintech in southeast asia is red hot right now investors are pouring money into these fintech startups the major reason being that southeast asia is light years behind western banking for example in indonesia of the 270 million people Roughly 180 million of them are unbanked. There are probably only 3 to 4 million people in Indonesia with credit cards. And people investing in the stock market probably represents that same 3 to 4 million people. This huge gap represents opportunity for entrepreneurs investors. But it also creates a huge obstacle for entrepreneurs on the ground. With people and businesses so uneducated about financial tools, how do you build trust and get them to use your product? No matter how good your product is, without trust, fintech companies are dead. Hero explains his early target audience, how his relationship with banks helped him land clients, and how he built trust as he entered new markets. Can you kind of explain and talk through like those early days of, of how did you approach getting new uh, new merchants online and convincing them that like you were the the safe and secure way to uh, handle their their cross-border payments? So for the first couple of years, I mean, because this is a licensed uh, a business, right? We have to get, uh, we have to apply for the uh, licenses from the regulators and so forth. Um, so for the first kind of couple of years, uh, we were kind of building the product and applying that license, uh, but we were transacting in a way that was, that was still compliant uh, without the license. Um, and, and you know, being coming from a BC background, uh, knowing a lot of BC friends, knowing a lot of the startup kind of community, uh, a lot of Singapore startups or Indonesian startups, they tend to raise money in USD, right? But they have operational expenses and other currencies, right? Uh, payroll to do in Singapore, designers to pay in Thailand, uh, vendors to pay in Europe or whatever. And that was kind of my initial, I guess, our initial go-to market. Uh, uh, we had a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, initial traction from, from these startup guys because uh, I, I guess they, they knew me uh, and, and was, uh, was keen to try out a, a payment or FX solution that could save them costs. Um, but yeah, definitely outside of that circle, it was, uh, it was more difficult uh, because of the, of the trust factor, right? We're a new player uh, and it was kind of, um, we had challenges convincing uh, more of the traditional or larger businesses uh, to onboard with that, to onboard with us. But I guess that came naturally as, as we grew our customer base, uh, we got our licenses and so forth. Yeah, I think uh, what you're talking about with the self-sustaining startup ecosystem, uh, a lot of startups can, can build very decent traction just through other startups. Um, but I'm, I want to I learn more about how you are, how you are approaching the, these other companies, right? Um, <clears throat> so were you... Did you set out and say, hey, we want to focus on um, like the import export companies um, in Singapore or did you focus, you know, were you focusing on a specific sector type size of company uh, when you were kind of branching out beyond just startups? Yeah, so I guess our customer base uh, target audience um, covers a wide range of uh, general kind of import export um industries uh how we kind of tried to identify uh each customer segment was that um so we looked at for example you know what's singapore importing from other countries 
what's Indonesia importing from other countries, right? We've got a bunch of data on this. And then uh, we'll try to break that down into like the specific sectors. And of course, like mining sector is not something that we would target, right? Because they're too big um, and the banks, you know, serve them well. But for example, like other smaller sectors like, like apparel, I mean, yeah, fashion is big, but there's a lot of uh, businesses, small, medium businesses that are importing goods in fashion. So we try to go to that, right? We try to uh, uh, identify, um, you know, companies that are importing, or importing uh, textile and so forth. Another kind of like hack that we did uh, was we'll go to like, for example, the Tokopedias or the Lazadas, right? We try to find a product that's been uh, selling a lot and we would go to their kind of store page and see who's been selling, uh, who's not. And then we kind of just kind of call them up and see whether they need to make their payments uh, overseas and would like to use Wallex. Got it. I love that. Uh, and then when you were, you're talking about trust, right? That's the thing that that's, missing for any any young company who is trying to break into uh the market <clears throat> and finances is, is probably a higher higher bar than uh you know if you're trying to switch crm tools what were the kind of things that you were doing to you know build that trust with these companies right you're talking about going to tokopedia and and cold calling people but um what was that that bridge that allowed you to uh, demonstrate was it just case studies or, or how how did you get get them ultimately onboarded? Yeah, so I guess we used a couple of kind of shills, as you would say, right? Uh, one, uh, we're invested by Central Capital Ventura, which is a VCA's uh, VC arm. Um, so we'll say like, hey, hey, you know, we're invested by well, not directly by VCA, but <laughs> we're invested by VCA. Yeah, and I guess two, <laughs> yeah, uh, um, having two licenses. Uh, in, you know, one in Singapore, uh, initially at that time, and one in Indonesia, uh, kind of built that credibility, right? It's not easy to get a remittance license. Um, so just by having that, it was able to kind of push us, push our, you know, um, that trust factor up. And uh, the third one that we tried, uh, we tried was uh, get like an anchor customer on board that, you know, many people will know of. Um, so in Indonesia, we had Ismaya Group using us. We had a couple of the uh, top, you know, travel agents using us as well. Um, yeah, so we try to get these uh, household names to use us first, so that we can market them. Uh, you know, market it to our potential customers. Say, hey, you know, look, these guys trust us with their money. You should, do, you should as well. Yeah. So for anyone listening, Ismaya is like a food and, and entertainment company in Indonesia um how did you so how did you get that that anchor client right i i that strategy totally makes sense but uh it can still be very difficult right and i'm i'm not sure you said you, you used you know you can leverage your bca uh affiliation um but like what kind of questions were were they asking you did was did you have the license at that time because you had mentioned that you had started out without the license um, yeah, so for the Indonesian customers, it was after the license. Uh, Singapore customers, uh, we were allowed to do the FX component. So let's say like a, a startup would send us their USD. We would exchange it into Sing dollar, Euro, and we would give it back into that currency. They send it out, right? Um, so, so back when we didn't have the license, that's how we would actually transact. We, we get the money from our customers and we give it, we send it back to them in a different currency and they send it out. Um, and then for the Indonesian customers, I mean, we didn't, we didn't really uh, do start doing our sales until we got our license. 
so having that license was was helpful when we started to approach these uh, these customers. Got it. Yeah, I mean fintech, you don't want <clears throat> to mess around with with the regulators. Um, Absolutely. Can I can I can I tell you a funny story? Yeah. <laughs> about, about about our early days on on license. So when we first started, right, it was uh, uh, 2016, we were building a product. We probably bought, we, you know, we raised a small, a decent angel round. It was four months in, right? And then we get a knock on our, on our 500 square feet, uh, 50, me 50 meter square uh, uh, office. And when I opened the door, um, there's this gentleman standing there. He's like, oh, you know, it's Mr. Ong. He's my, he's my co-founder in the office. I'm like, oh, no, no, he's not in. He's in Jakarta. I'm like, oh, how can I help you? And he pulls out his business card, name card, and I look at it, and it says police, like, like CAD, right? I was like, what the fuck is happening? He's like, like oh, oh, oh. I, you know, I, I was like surprised to get a visit from the police. Like, why, why would we get a visit from the police? And uh, the officer at that time was like, um, we've been hearing that you've, you've been running an illegal remittance business and we're here to invest the case further. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we haven't even started. We're in a dinky little shop house and somebody told you they're running an illegal remittance business. And it just like, I was like, like, like my face was just white. Like, what, what do we do? And uh, they came in, they kicked our office, they asked us questions and we had to hand them over bunch of documents uh, on our on our kind of first set of startup customers they also ended up calling our clients customers to their office to find out more about us and that was just like wow <laughs> so that case was like uh, open for about eight months uh, it definitely delayed I would think that it kind of delayed our license application uh, but yeah, man, uh, for those of you listening, when you're dealing with a licensed uh, business, make sure you, you, know, have, you, you do everything proper. <laughs> yeah, that sounds so intense. Did, the, uh, <clears throat> like, did this police raid uh, cost you customers like when they're getting interrogated or were they like, yeah, no problem? Actually, I mean, these were like my, our kind of friends and family network, so they were supportive, you know. Um, so yeah, not, <laughs> so luckily, uh, we didn't lose any customers then. <laughs> Wow, that is that is very fortunate, but crazy story. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. Police in Singapore are are scary, in, in my opinion. It's no joke. Yeah. It's no joke, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because every now and then we would get a letter from the police uh, because it's just to make sure that um, you know they they give us notices saying, hey, if you guys have any transactions for these kind of names, do report to us. Every time we get that letter and that police letter, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, dude, anything official is just so nerve-wracking. Yeah. Um, so we've been talking about how, uh, you know, Singapore and Indonesia, right? These are two markets that you operate in. Uh, you're also in Hong Kong right now, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. one of the things that I, I'm interested in, and I know you're still early in this journey, um, but I, I asked a, a previous guest, um, about this pouch nation is how did you think about that expansion right and how did you approach what steps did you take what were you assessing right so like singapore uh small small country state you know what five million people right so uh there's the ability to to start and to grow right but you know for a business in southeast asia you have to um 
you have to go across borders. And it, it, for a business like yours, it definitely makes sense, right? So what made you go from Singapore to Indonesia and then uh, Hong Kong? Sure. Um, so when we look at kind of expansion, we look at three main criterias, right? The first and fourth, uh, most important, um, the feasibility of getting a license, right? How difficult, how easy is it even, does the license even exist, right? So we've identified, uh, you know, uh, several cities uh, or, or countries across APAC. And so uh, the second criteria that we look at is how big of an import-export kind of trading corridor is it between these nations, right? So when we look at, like, for example, Singapore, Indonesia, I think it's like a 30, 40 billion dollar market. They, they import, export uh, with each other. And then Singapore, Hong Kong is a decent size. Hong Kong, Indonesia is a decent size. So we try to kind of kind of create these uh, nodes or corridors. Um, by the way, when I say uh, corridors, we're not, we don't focus specifically on that, on, on that corridor, but having these two, um, having infrastructure and being able to send money uh, between these two, uh, 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 makes a big difference when it comes to like FX and revenue, right? But anyways, so we look at the kind of import-export uh, uh, trade size uh, between these two countries. And the third, and which I think is uh, one that's important that's going to help you scale, is how embedded or integrated can you be with the local banking infrastructure, right? I mean, in the end, like, like I think when we look at establishing ourselves uh, into a country, we need to integrate with the local banks, a strong local banking partner, uh, do the payouts, to do the cash in portion, cash out portion, right? Um, so when we looked at these uh, kind of three factors, um, Singapore, of course, was an obvious choice, Hong Kong as well, and Indonesia, despite being uh, more difficult in terms of getting the license, well, I'm half Indonesian, my co-founder is half Indonesian. We thought that with, 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 uh, with our, I guess, network, uh, we could make it work in Indonesia. I, I mean, I, I pound the drum on, on Indonesia and the value, especially because it has so much growth opportunity because of the, the pop, sheer population size. Um, mm. But can you tell me more about, uh, you know, how you integrate with these, with these banks and what, what kind of goes into that, right? Because um, Singapore and Hong Kong are pretty mature countries when it comes to banking and then Indonesia uh, is you know half step behind right it's you know the banking system the, the end user banking experience is uh, you know from my perspective pretty painful compared to you know how I bank uh, in the US right so I guess what kind of challenges have you uh, experienced um, with that and like what have you learned when you go to another market Sure. Yeah. So I think when we look at banking integration, I mean, we have a list of things that we want from a bank, right? Uh, one is FX, one is automatic kind of payments, reconciliation. So we got, we have like a, a list of things. Um, so how we approached on, on speaking or deciding on which bank to, to integrate with is that, um, you know, we would, we would kind of first open up accounts with them. Right. And then the second one, you know, we ask, Hey, are you guys, do you guys do business with our kind of uh, business? So we were considered like a money service business or money service operator. Some banks tend to stay away from it because they classify us or categorize us as like a high risk uh, business segment, but some banks are a little bit more open to it. Right. Um, so that, that's the second thing that we ask. And then once they're open, you know, once we kind of clear those two, uh, two hurdles, then we start asking, Hey, can we integrate to your 
APIs to do automatic settlements? Can we integrate for reconciliations and so forth? And through those, um, um, those kind of uh, things that we've considered, uh, uh, we were able to kind of find uh, local core banking partners uh, in each of the countries. So DBS for Singapore, BCA for Indonesia. Well, I guess DBS for Hong Kong as well. Um, but I think the initial challenge that we faced when we were uh, trying to work, you know, um, do some work with the bank was, of course, because we're a licensed, uh, because we're a remittance operator. Uh, I think they, they tend to kind of uh, be like, oh, so you guys are going to compete with us, right? You guys are going to, <laughs> take our business away yeah. and, and and I think that was the kind of mindset maybe like four or five years ago right but now that's kind of totally changed and our, our positioning when we approach a bank is also like hey you know um, we don't want to compete with you guys but let us help you let, help us help you right uh, whatever transaction flows that's whatever effects that we're going to do with uh, our customers through wallets it's going to go through you through you so it's business for you and for the maybe you know the segments that you don't really uh, uh, target or it's, you know it takes a lot of uh, resources and effort for you to target, let us onboard them. Right? And I think that's how we uh, that's how we were able to position ourselves uh, to be more. You know, we're on your side of the bank. We're we're on their side instead of competing against them. Does the number of banks that you have partnerships with and integrated with in a country uh, does that affect? your growth, right? You know, so you've, you've mentioned these anchor banks in each of these countries, but you know, every country has like dozens and dozens of, of different mm. banks. So is it, if you get more, you know, you get BNI, you get um, Mandiri uh, and uh, BRI and, and you know, um, there's a ton more banks in Indonesia, right? Uh, get them on board. Does that open up your potential uh, customer base or if um, it doesn't matter? The way I uh, look at that is I think for for the B2B segment and because our customers are predominantly in Jakarta right now, a lot of businesses, uh, I guess 95% of the ones that we, we business with have a BCA account. So it was okay to just have a BCA account. Um, so, but then like, you know, I think having the other banks gives optionality or preference. Uh, uh, so, so I guess it was, it was really important for us to kind of one, uh, lock down like a key banking partner, like, uh, like, 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 like BCA. And that was, I guess, even now, I think uh, most of our transactions are through BCA anyway. Um, and, and I think that's the difference between you know, a B2C kind of business where you need a lot of other banks, BRI, BNI, Mandiri, and so forth, versus a B2B business where BC alone is, is, is enough. Writing a check is easy. Building a startup is significantly harder. But until you've done both, it's harder to understand the differences. Hero's unique background gives him a rare perspective. While he thought he knew a lot coming from VC about raising capital, he found out it was much more difficult. We finished the episode with Hero's thoughts on fundraising, recruiting, and advice for young entrepreneurs. How did the, the fundraising process go for you with Wallex? And were there any things that you were you might have been aware of that first-time founders might not have been might not be aware of when they, they are making their, their presentations to to investors? 
So uh, this is uh, me being, I guess, somewhat overconfident or arrogant. Uh, during the early days of fundraising for Wallex, I was like, "Yeah, man, I, I used to be in VC. You know, I know what I know what they look for. I can kind of mold my deck, whatever, to to present and you know give the story of uh, be able to kind of tell the story of what Wallex is going to be." Uh, so I paid a bunch of my kind of VC contacts, say, "Hey, look, I'm doing uh, Wallex now. You know, we're raising our, our kind of pre A round. You want to talk?" So that part was easy, right? Getting the getting the first conversation was was uh was pretty uh, i would say smooth right but from then on man oh man i was i was wrong like man fundraising is difficult right and uh, i guess what made it uh challenging as well was um you know it, i think like uh, there was there was also a decent amount of uh, uh, other uh type of similar type of companies raising decent rounds back then and and there was like a lot of noise around around kind of cross mittens FX, and for us, I think finding a VC or investor that really understood the space uh, was also kind of um, uh, I would say challenging. But you know, we had, we had to look hard uh, for 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 someone to be able to really understand that that knows the space and to back us, uh, uh, even back then without a license. So we were very very fortunate to have some of our kind of early backers like Dnex, right? They're they're great guys. They believed in us early on. We didn't have, we didn't have shit. We didn't have a license, but we had some initial traction. Um, but you know, very fortunate to have them on the cap table early on. Um, so I guess you know, being a <laughs> being a VC and turning into a founder doesn't necessarily get you an investment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was that was a that was a that was a lesson that I had to learn early on. Um, and what I and I guess for time founders raising raising uh, fund, raising funding from VCs. One thing that, that I would advise them is that, you know, when, when an investor is looking at multiple deals, they're always weighing optionality, right? Right. Um, so when you pitch to them for, let's say, just a 500K round, half a million, right? They're saying, okay, can I, you know, if I put 500K now, will I miss out on another 500K opportunity maybe a month, two months? Or, you know, should I save this to top up on a, on a, on a portfolio that, that, that's doing well, that's going to raise the next round soon? So there's various kind of um, factors that's going to impact, uh, impact their decision on investing in Zinu. So don't, don't, don't fret. Don't be disheartened when they say no, right? And maybe even if they uh, say, you know, the, the reasons why they think that, that this is not a right good, good fit at the moment, they might have their internal reasons why they can't invest. Yeah. So don't be the start to right? The founder-investor uh, relationship and, and match, I think is, is underrated, right? Uh, you were, you were mm-hmm. saying that you were, you were looking for um, uh, partners who really understood the space, right? And not just, you know, any VC doesn't necessarily have, have expertise, knowledge on, on every industry, right? And so that, that plays a role in, um, you know, whether or not they're going to want to invest or not. Uh, but I wanted to ask, is there, you know, since, you, since you've been on both sides, is there questions that, that first-time founders should be asking in, in these um, in these pitch meetings that they might not be or not might not know to ask, right? So you, you're you were just talking about how uh, VCs might be assessing whether they should uh, put in 500k. 
wait for a new opportunity or, you know, top up. Um, so this might be something that, you know, founders might not realize, right? So is there, is there key pieces of information that, um, you know, a founder should be asking um, that they're not? Yeah, so I mean, as a founder, when you're pitching to VC, uh, it's definitely good to do, um, you know, their homework as well. Uh, just to kind of get a sense of what kind of portfolio companies they're, uh, they've invested in, uh, you know, who the, who the managing partners are and so forth. And then where, you know, when, so when they raise their, uh, when they close their fund uh, and, and, and how long into their fund life cycle that they're in at all, right? So a couple of questions that, that I find useful. Um, I mean, there's the, there's the usual ones like, oh, you know, how long does your investment process take? What's your average, average ticket size? Uh, are you deploying funds now? Are you raising your, your um, you know, next, next uh, fund, you know, where, in which stage, right? But some of the key questions that I like to usually ask is like, you know, how, how do you work with your portfolio companies, right? Um, is it, is it uh, uh, hands-on? Is it hands-off? Um, so things around the working relationship between uh, a VC uh, investor and the founder is important. So I try to kind of dig into that. Um, of course, I don't ask this on in the very, very beginning, but I do tend to ask these questions to the guys who are like doing due, due diligence, maybe towards the uh, tail end of the process, just to kind of get a sense of, of what it's going to be like uh, working with, with these uh, partners, right? With these investors. Uh, yeah, and so just to clarify for people who might not be familiar, uh, you make this pitch, right? And then uh, venture capitalist A says uh, we're interested, right? We're, we we want to we want to fund you, and then they go into due diligence, right? And this is where uh, they they will invest based on them doing some research, deeper research on 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 you, your business metrics, etc. Right? So can you just give a quick 30 second overview of what that due diligence process might look like and where, uh, where these questions that you're, you're talking about would could like potentially be brought up. Yeah, absolutely. So I think when we, when, when as, as a, as a VC, I think when uh, I was at strive uh, back then it was called three ventures. We used to look at five criteria. One is, and kind of do like a scoring uh, metric on it. Right. Or evaluation. On it. Um, first it's the founder. Of course, if you're if you're a previous founder, you know two x one x founder, you score higher, right? And then we look at the kind of market growth and the market segment, right? Um, let's say you're you're in a you're in a you're doing like a furniture startup, right? Is is your business growing because the market is growing? Will your business continue to grow even if the market stops growing? So we kind of do like an evaluation on that. Another one is like. Uh, uh, investment value. So, like, we, uh, this this is not too big, but we look at the valuation, the dilution, so forth. Um, another one is uh, so the fourth one, sorry, is the uh, exit opportunity. Right? Uh, has there been proven business models that's exited in in this segment? Um, and what was the last one? I forgot what the last one was, but I guess these are the kind of due diligence type of um, of. Uh, uh, information gathering data VC would start to do. So, you know, based on these kind of uh, criteria, they would start asking questions, right, on your financials, on your outlook, and so forth. And I think, yeah, I mean, even, I guess any time after the first meeting, uh, it's always a good time to sort of ask uh, the VCs on, on what the relationship like is going to be. Yeah, because 
when you pitch, you're pitching to the entire partnership. But once you start getting into that due diligence phase, you're probably going to be um, liaising with uh, one of the, the partners who will kind of be leading it and be your, your key partner in it. Is that, and then yeah, yeah. that closer relationship, you can ask those, those questions. Definitely. Yes. Uh, and so in a previous interview with Tiger Fong, he and I were kind of talking about um, is VC right for every company and how do you uh, assess that? Right. And so, um, you know, why, why did Wallex want to, or feel the need to, to raise uh, venture capital? Um, because, you know, it, it, VC isn't for, for every type of company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny because I kind of, I tweeted this recently and I said like, you know, please give me the serenity to accept the fact that owning hundred percent of the business, making a million dollars in profit is better than, uh, owning less than 5% of a unicorn that's deeply unprofitable. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, and, 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 you know, like even from the get-go, we've, we've wanted to kind of build this into a, uh, in a, into a sustainable business. Yeah. And, and I think we do have, I'm confident that we can as well. But in the beginning, um, I mean, we, we raised funding because one, of course, we, you know, we had to build the product uh, one or another while applying for the license, right? So during that time, we had to hire people. Uh, even though we didn't do marketing or sales, uh, you know, we had to get guys on board to kind of set up the infrastructure uh, to be able to scale once we got that license. And then once we had the license, we got on board, you know, sales, uh, did a bit of marketing. So VC funding was really to support that initial kind of building out of the infrastructure. All right. And, and did... Did have you found during your your recruiting process right getting getting new talent onto the team is is critical to your to your growth right um, one I want to understand how you recruit what what are the traits of someone that you recruit to your team uh, and then secondarily I, I'm interested to know does the raising venture capital and who you raise venture capital uh, from impact that recruiting process at all. Yeah, so I think when we look at recruiting, um, I, I guess the key trait that we, we try to identify is the drive to learn, right? How motivated are you to learn new things? You know, what's your, uh, how curious are you uh, when it comes to different topics? So, so the reason why I say that is because we've had a lot of people, I, I would say a lot, but a decent number of guys who joined Wallex who had totally different careers um, from their job before. Just to give you an example, we had a, a, a I think university tutor become a product manager. Right? Yeah. We had a, a we had an office boy. So an office boy in the context of uh, Indonesia is someone who does does a lot of the admin kind of uh, deliveries, you know, bring coffees and so forth. He's now like an operations associate, like tr making sure that thousands of transactions are going through. Yeah, uh, and and you know, it's just it's just nice to see these kind of. Um, Things work out, and I, I, I know I've, I've, you know, it's good to see Wallace being a place where, where it gives the opportunity for candidates, uh, for employees to do something different, to to explore a different career path, even though you have no experience in in, in what what you're gonna do at Wallace. But how um, how do you how do you gauge that during the the interview process? Does, do you give them tests? Do you give them assignments? Do you give them trial? 
uh, trial periods. Like, because I that I totally understand what you're saying, but for anyone who's hired people, it's really really hard to to gauge that in a few um, you know 30, 60 minute interviews. So, is there anything that like stands out when you're doing these interviews um, to to find that? Yeah, so the candidates that I find most engaging when it comes to trying to gauge uh, uh, this is one, how prepared they are. So, you know, we had this guy um, who kind of came up with like whole, like, like 10, five to 10 slide presentation on how Wallet should sell uh, to their customers, right? Uh, like how, how Wallet should sell their services to their customers. I was like, oh, wow. And so that's one thing um, how prepared they are and about Wallet, how much they know. And also, on the questions, right? I think a good interview should be Q&A, right? It should be me asking them about uh, the candidates, but also the candidates asking um, questions about the company, about me, about the founders, about the team. And, and I think through that, you start to kind of say, hey, this guy's, you know, he's, uh, he's pretty interested uh, in, in this company, you know, we should, we should really kind of consider him, uh, him or her, you know? And sorry, just on your question on, on, on the uh, investors, uh, you know, how has it helped with the recruiting process? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think uh, it really kind of mattered a lot. I mean, we do try to say that, you know, we're invested by this, this and that, but it's a, it's a very kind of minor point when it comes to recruiting. Okay. I mean, in the U.S., uh, there, it definitely plays a role. And maybe, maybe here it just gives the, the idea of financial stability. Um, but I totally agree with you when you're talking about the questions uh, are so indicative of, of what kind of candidate you have. Uh, I judge a lot of the candidates that I, I interview based on the, the type and the um, quality and the, the you know, total number of questions uh, that they're asking me because yeah, that does tie into your fact of people who are you know, inquisitive and want to learn are, are able to kind of switch those career paths. To, to sum up, you know, one question or, that I'd like for any first-time founder, someone who is, who is looking um, to start a, a company, you know, is there a, a single piece of advice uh, that you would, you would give them when, when they, uh, they haven't started their company yet? I think one thing that I found out recently is that, you know, when you ask for help, people more often than not are willing to help, right? There's a lot of people within the community that wants to give back to the community as well. And that wants to nurture sort of or mentor, you know, founders, entrepreneurs. So my piece of advice is don't be afraid to ask for help, right? Be shameless even. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, even though 10 people say, uh, you know, no, maybe the 11th or 12th guy uh, person would, would say yes and they would extend their help. Um, so I think that's, that's uh, my key takeaway for my key advice for first-time entrepreneurs. Yeah, you have to be shameless if you want to be a founder. So if anyone wants to, <laughs> uh, to connect with you and find you online, like uh, how can they do that? Uh, yeah, so I'm available on LinkedIn as well, Hirokiga, and on Twitter as well, at Hirokiga. Um, so yeah, my, my door is always open and, and do reach out. Excellent. Right. So I will link all of that in the description below. Thank you so much for the time. This was an excellent conversation. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Side Door Podcast. As always, I appreciate a five-star rating or you sharing this episode with a friend. 
You can subscribe to email updates at SideDoorFM, or you can send me suggestions at Jesse Bowman on Twitter or Instagram. As always, stay curious.